Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today, from Agassi to Nishikori, Hingis to Haas, Courier to Sharapova, Boris Becker to both Williams sisters. This guy has coached them all. His academy is indisputably the most successful tennis boarding school in the history of the sport. He's written numerous books and is the subject of the Emmy-nominated Showtime documentary, Love Means Zero. Nick Volateri is going to tell us how he built his coaching empire, why Novak Djokovic is the tennis player for the times, which former student he thinks had the most raw talent, and how in the world he could get married nine times. At 87, Nick is a force to be reckoned with. We see him at nearly every tennis tournament, always shaking hands, always sharing wisdom, always on his feet. A few weeks back, we saw him at the New York Open and got him to sit down and share some wisdom with us. We are in the bowels of the Nassau Coliseum, Jim Courier's locker room for the night. Nick Boletari, what is happening, my man? Well, I think that uh, I'm just beginning to do things. You know, people say to me, Nick, when are you going to retire? First of all, there's no such word as retirement. No such word. When you climb a mountain, you're looking for the next higher mountain. And I believe that when a person says, I'm going to retire, their mind goes dormant and they go down, baby. So I'm going to continue going up. I mean, what a, what a way to get started right here. Nick Terry. <laughs> Breaking it down right out of the box. Right. Keep going up. So in order to cover a wide range of topics and subjects, we do a five-set format. This is our first set where we discuss what you've been up to. It's called the Off the Court Report. In tennis, you've always been, you know, front and center in the players' boxes, on TV. Um, I interviewed you for a documentary I, I did on Andre Agassi for the Tennis Channel. I also produced you for the USA Network out at the US Open uh, many years ago. But you are first and foremost a revolutionary coach. What are you up to right now? First of all, how old are you right now? I'll be 88. You are a young 88 man. In fact, I just had my eyes examined, 2020, no lens, no glasses. Now, are you um, on the court at all? I am, I give uh, three to four lessons a day at IMG, and then I see the full-time groups, tentative campus, and I also see the adults each week. But you give mostly a pep talk. You give a pep talk, you, you, you talk technique with them. Well, we do, it depends. I mean, the lessons that I give. Sometimes we work on techniques, sometimes strategy, sometimes the Q&A, but this year, I'll be traveling about 200,000 miles worldwide as well. I give a lot of motivational speeches. I just gave two for Merrill Lynch. Goldman Sachs, and I, so I do a lot of speaking throughout the world. When you speak, what's, uh, what, what are some of the things that you talk about? What it takes to be a winner. How do you deal with adversity? How do you judge your employees? How do you judge your children? What do you do when everything hits the fan? Give us a taste of something like something you might have told these guys from Merrill Lynch. Number one, never use the word, I can't do it. Many years ago, took Agassiz to a tournament in Washington, D.C. He went up to qualify. He didn't make it. Walked across the street and found him in the park 
breaking his rackets. And I said, what's wrong, Andre? He said, Nick, I don't have it. I can't do it. Do I have a watch on? He said, no. Don't you ever use the word I can't. Do you hear me? Two weeks later, we went to Stratton Mountain. He beat one of the best players of the world. And the rest is history. He went on to be one of the best players in the world. And, and these guys, they must love your stories, huh? Well, first of all, I tell true stories. You know, Tony Robbins tells lots of stories. He's very famous, makes a lot of money. But every story I give, I lived. And now I've written my 11th book, written it my own self. My thumb is twice the size. I don't know how to use a computer. And it's going to be called A Coach's Journey, sharing 60 years with Nick Bollettieri. The forward is done by Jim Currier. Second part of the book, what I learned from 32 of my best players. I take the player, break him down to what they taught me. The chapter on leadership and being a leader, done by the commander of the Blue Angels. And now, Nick, who are the 32 players? Can you name them by heart? Well, I can name a lot of them. Agassi, Selish, Courier, Venus, Serena, Hinkis, Rios, Jankovic, Sherpova, Becca, Haas, Kornikova, Max Murney, Xavier Melis, Kay Nishikori, Kathleen Horvath, Colin Bassett, Bassett, Jimmy Arias, Aaron Krikstein, Eric Carita, Pam Casal, Paul Anacone. Paul Anacone Did was he one. make the book? Not only made it, baby, he wrote the forward. Paul Anacone said that, he said that he thought Jimmy Arias didn't get enough credit as a great American player. Uh, would you agree with that? Well, f- first of all, Jimmy Arias came to the Colony Beach Hotel when he was 14 years old, set him down in court three. He hit a forehead with a cockamini grip, wrapped around the back of his head, jumped off his feet, called my staff. That's the voluntary forehand. He changed the power game. If his daddy had let me put him into a two-handed backhand, Jimmy would still be playing today. <laughs> That's pretty funny. But, you know, people don't remember how good he was. He got to four in the world. Four in the world. With no backhand. Well, it was an adequate backhand, but today, against a big power game, he would have to have changed his grip more over to the left, more to a stronger grip, because his eastern backhand would never have made it against the heavy balls of today's game. Do you like hearing from the most interesting people in tennis, but have neither the time nor the interest to launch your own tennis podcast? Well, maybe you can join in the cause and help support this one. Our Patreon page is in full effect. Here you can support the show, and we can offer you cool perks like access to unheard episodes, Solinko string packages, autograph racket magazines, and even hitting sessions at exclusive clubs with some of our previous guests. You can check it out at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash underreviewtennis. And please help spread the word. Thank you. Let's get back to Nick Bolateri. This is our second set. We call this the On the Court Report. 
What were your impressions of pro tennis coming out of Australia, moving into the spring? Let's start with the women. Well, first of all, definitely Serena's back, but you'll have to watch out for the unknowns. Many years ago, a top seed had two or three easy rounds. Today, a top seed can be knocked off in the first round. Um, we should talk a little bit about Serena. Have you had any inside information? Have you learned anything interesting about what happened with her last year? Well, what do you think of this more Tagalu, by the way? I don't talk about personal things, but let me say this. Yeah. When you hit a ball so flat and so hard, and you don't have balance, and that's what happened in Australia. Her balance was not there because she has no safety margin at all. Her daddy, Richard, God bless him, with the job he did with Venus and Serena. Venus has a little bit more finesse, comes in. Serena only knows Muay Muay, pow. But if you're not in position and have balance, that affects the racket head and she flew a lot of balls out. But I kind of felt like she choked slow. She lost a big lead in a grand slam that was surprising. I think surprising. she was like 5-1, wasn't she? I think she was 5, yeah, I think, I think it was 5-1 serving. And she, on match point, she banged an ace. They called her for a footfall. Yeah. And then she lost the set. Um, do you think that maybe her team has created a pressure cooker that she just can't? And, and as you get a little bit older, uh, it's harder to win those seven matches anyway? Well, first of all, I'm very close to the Williams family. Serena always stays in touch with me to make sure I'm okay. She's had a baby. Perhaps there's a lot on her mind. And remember, when you claim, and almost everybody agrees, as the greatest player ever, age is coming into effect. The physical condition is coming into effect. Having a baby is coming into effect. There's an awful lot of things. And the caliber of play on the tour is getting better and better. Do you think she can win seven matches in two weeks anymore? I think a lot of people will be looking at that. And it's going to be very interesting in the next six months of what happens in the next three Grand Slams for Serena. That's going to be a big, a big story. Big story, Nick, huh? Big story. Woo! Big story right there, boy. Yes, it is. And uh, this is the Godfather. We're talking to the Godfather of tennis right here, man. Nick Bull of Terry. Yeah. Well, you've seen a lot of changes in tennis, and uh, today the game has changed. It's much more physical. I think the average size now on the men's tour is about six three. Back in the time of Andre, five eleven. Right. And look at the ladies, how big they are. So. When you're a little person, you have to be able to play the whole game and stay fairly close to the baseline. You can't get off that baseline anymore. As, as a young girl, and winning today from six, eight feet behind the baseline, very difficult. And by the way, a lot more one-handers on the road today, you know that? But overall, if I had to say, Nick, you're pinned down, what has more benefits the one or two. I still think the two-handed has more benefits. Well, it just seems like the high, the high back and more strength and able to do a little bit more. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, 
you know, you've had, you've, you've coached, you've coached the best two-handed backhands in the history of the game, and you also coached. I mean, listen, Tommy Haas's one-handed backhand, oh, incredible. My, my Tommy's, he's, he, he just texts me, Nikki. He always calls me Nikki. I okay, you coming out to Palm Springs again? I'm going to go to see David Fawcett next week with Tommy. You're going to go see him? Because he's married to David's uh, daughter. Sarah Foster. Way back, David Foster brought his 12-year-old daughter, Sarah, to the academy during the Christmas holidays. He said, Nick, what do you think? He said, Dave, college maybe. New Year's Eve, I had an antique piano. He came over where I had the five units, played the piano at New Year's Eve. And then Tommy winds up marrying his daughter later on. Were you at the wedding? No. All right, let's get back to the men playing now. You know, what have we learned this year? I mean, what can you say about Novak at the Australian Open? It shows how important movement is. And Djokovic displays it unbelievable. To me, in the history of tennis, I didn't say he was the greatest player ever. Djokovic is the best put-together player in every category of the game. Nick, can you believe what he did to Rafa in that final? Well, I can sort of uh, summarize that match. Rafa standing so far behind the baseline, I thought he was part of the stands. I was shocked and amazed. He got, so put, he got pushed back. That he didn't move back in because... Well, well, he, he didn't move back. He didn't move back. He didn't move back. But, he, but you know, Courier actually said that he looked... Slow to the ball. And he did. It, but it was because Novak was taking all his time, wasn't it? Well, you got to remember, when you're 8 to 10, 15 feet behind the baseline, the balls lose their velocity and land short. Djokovic came up, did a little sissy drop shot, boom, to the corner, come in and volley for a winner. But what I was surprised about is that something had to be wrong when Nadell didn't come back in. He wasn't the same. And it's going to be very interesting to see the French Open this year. And by the way, let's give a farewell thumbs up to Andy Murray. And there's a guy who gave it all. All right, this is our third set where we talk about your life and your career. You know, I don't even really know where to start. But, you know, first and foremost, you're from New York, right? Yes, right up the street. North Pelham, New York, baby. You're from right up here. Yeah. You're from right here. Yep. We're in, in the Nassau Coliseum. You're from, this is like back to your roots yep. a little grew, bit. Grew up in a black Italian neighborhood, North Pelham, New York. 139 6th Street, North Pelham. There's North Pelham, the blacks, the Italians, a few Jews. Pelham in the middle and Pelham Manor, the rich side. So we had to walk five miles to school. I was captain of the football team. And in my junior year, ending my junior year, my uncle said, let's play tennis. Tennis, what is tennis? He said, it's a sissy sport. I played some, fairly good athlete, played a lot, made the college team. From there, I became a first lieutenant in the paratroopers. And from there, I uh, went on to the University of Miami Law School. I lasted three months. Then I started teaching tennis on two courts in North Miami Beach at Victory Park, and I made $3 an hour. And that started my career. And God gave me the gift to be able to read people and not try to make everybody the same. 
And Brian Gottfried was one of my best first students. Yeah, Paul Anacone told us that he said Godfrey was the first. But the first one was Carling Bassett. Carling Bassett. Then Jimmy Arias. Right. Then Eric Carita, Pam Cassell, Kathleen Horvath. They had 10 living in my house. Really? And then we bought a motel. And, colony, and, right? No, and no. a tennis club. And then my friend, Mr. Lewis Marks, his daddy owned Marks Toys. Let me $2 million, I bought 40 acres of land and built the first living tennis academy, sports academy of the world. Voluntary Tennis Academy. That's right. And everybody said I was crazy. But you know what? 60 Minutes 2020 Sports Illustrated, you have to be crazy to do what I did. Same people do things they know they can do. Not me, not Richard Williams. He taught his daughters differently. And they all said, Richard, you need, they need a coach. Well, look what happened when the girls came out. So he did a great job with his two daughters. You know, Nick, you know, obviously you've been prolific and have coached a million different players. Um, who stands out to you as someone who never really reached their potential? One of the players that had the most talent of any of the players I played with, that I coached, Marcelo Rios, the Chile man. He was number one for about three weeks. He didn't appreciate the game, the players, the children, too bad. Talent-wise, he was here. So it just shows that talent alone is not enough. Then you get a guy like Jim Currier, far less talent, but baby, I'm a bulldog. I'm gonna fight you, baby. You got to beat me. I'm not going to lose. You've got to beat me. So Marcelo Rios fell short of what he could have been in the history of tennis. You know, we spoke with Ian Hamilton. Uh, he's, he's been a guest on our show from Nike. And he actually said that one of, his, one of the first things he did when Nike started to get into the apparel business, along with the shoe business, was he did a deal with you. Yes, sir. And he said that you spent a lot of time with him. He's a great human being. How important was uh, the Nike relationship? Because I, you know, I actually got a picture of myself with the bulletary shirt sure. that came down the side. That was yeah. a great shirt. I remember down in, uh, in New York, Phil Knight, Ian Hamilton, and all the guys. Uh, Nike did a great job for, for tennis. And Ian Hamilton is a superhuman being. I hope that his health uh, doesn't go down any further. Ian seems to be on an uptick, man. Let's let's give him a okay. shout out to Ian Hamilton. People should listen to that episode. That's a great episode. Yes. And another great human being that we haven't talked a lot about, Monica Sellers. You had a great run with Monica oh, Sellers. But what a wonderful human being, she said. Kind soul. And notice, she's not going through life by saying, why did this happen to me? Why did it happen? And she's moved on. Well, you're talking about her getting stabbed on yes, the court. Sir. She's a very um, under-the-radar former player. We don't see a lot of her these days. Are you still in touch with her? All the time. What's she doing? Well, she's going to help me with my inner-city program. Oh, good. And also, she said, Nick, I will make some appearances for you as well. Now, Nick, um, I got to ask you this. I, I wasn't sure if I could go there, but you're a straight shooter. How do you get married nine times? 
How could you make that mistake? Like, how could you do that over and over and Well, over I think over? my very close friend, John Hendrickson, who's married to Mary Lou, Whitney Vanderbilt, said, Nick doesn't um, date him, he marries them. Yeah, what's the story with that? I don't even know. I just moved on, baby. And then Showtime Day asked me the same question. I couldn't even name the names of my eight wives. No, I know, but did you really have eight weddings, nine weddings? How I, many weddings do you have? I don't know. I was married eight times. That's what it says. I don't remember. It's past, baby. It's over. That's it. That's it. But Move you just on. married them all? Hey, I'll tell you one thing. They were good looking, though. They were all good looking, baby. Now, Nick, um, when the book's written about you, how do you think the tennis world, you know, what do you think that they should say? Very interesting you asked that. The last part of the book is the impact I made on 70 lives who wrote emails and stories back of the impact I made in their life. That's important. And today I'm doing the Ash Voluntary Program. I brought it back. It started two weeks ago in the Sarasota area. I'm working with inner city children and give them an opportunity because we have two adopted sons from Ethiopia and I want to give other children a chance in life. Nick's doing a lot of stuff, man. Yeah. I mean, you got endless energy. What, do you have a routine? Are you doing a certain kind of exercise or are you just moving and grooving all day? I don't even think about it because tennis is a waste of time when you die. You'll have bloody time to sleep. And when I do sleep, one eye open and one eye closed. Don't want to miss the action, baby. <laughs> all right. This is our fourth set. We call this the 10-ball scramble. And it's just word association. I say something and you just say what you think. It's not like a deep dive. Okay. The last concert you've seen. Barry Gibbs, the Bee Gees. When did you see that? I was their motivational speaker back in Vegas when they did the last one. No kidding. Barry's sons both came to the academy. Last book you read. I don't read. You don't read? Don't read. You just write them? I just write them. The last movie you saw. I, I, I love the, uh, the Italian, uh, what was it, Italian Journey of that? I don't know, but the movies I do look at are the mafia movies. You like the gangster movies? Absolutely. What's your favorite gangster movie? Godfather? Godfather. There's no other movie but The Godfather. You know that. Well, I mean, there's a lot of good ones. You like Mean Streets? Yes. You like all those movies, yes, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. What was your last sports event you watched? The Super Bowl, baby. What do you think of that team, that Belichick team? Well, I've been a friend of the Kraft family for 50 years. Their sons, Robert and John, attended my academy. I stay in Bob Kraft's home, and I know them very well. Have you ever given the team a pep talk? No. No. But I'll tell you this. Belichick is successful because he knows his players. And that's the key to success, is knowing your players. You got to trust your team. You got to trust them. Trust your people. And, of course... Their quarterback, Tom Brady, about six months ago, I wrote him a letter. I said, Tom, I played quarterback for North Pelham High School. You know, and I, I saw you throw the ball this way and that way. He wrote me back a beautiful letter. He said, Nick, keep teaching tennis. That's what he told you? Yeah. You're, you're yeah. trying to tell him how to throw the ball, no, Nick? No, no, no. I told him I saw how he saw the field. That's how I see the tennis field. The same as how he sees, sees the entire field. 
I mean, Nick Bulletary talking to Tom Brady, incredible. Um, your favorite tournament? The Miami Open is tremendous, Indian Wells, and the U.S. Open. You like those three? Yes. Those are your favorite? Those are my favorite. Your favorite court? Could be any court in the whole world. What's your favorite court? I, I like the center court at the U.S. Open. You like Ash Stadium, center yes, court? Yes, sir. Um, what's the biggest mistake you think you've made over the course of your career? I made several, but one of the biggest was sitting in the box of Andre at the French Open. When you when had I, both Courier yes. and Andre. Yes. What do you think your biggest win has been? Do you have, is there one that stands out in your mind? 92, Andre winning Wimbledon. You know, we interviewed you about that, and you said that, um, that he didn't practice on grass before that tournament. He called me up. He said, Nick, what are we going to do? I said, we got to go practice. Well, let's go down to Miami area. Well, he was chasing a girl. You said that. I'm not going to even mention that. But, <laughs> but we went down, played golf with Robert Seguso. day before we left, he said, Nick, maybe we better hit a few balls. So we hit a few balls for about 15 minutes, went over, gave a big clinic, and they said to him, Andre, where have you been preparing? Oh, I've been in Miami area practicing every day. We didn't hit a lick. But five minutes on hard court. That's it. And yes. he went. He won the. He won the Wimbledon. Yes, sir. That's a good win, Nick. This is our final set. We call this the king of the court. Nick, if you were the king of tennis, what would you change to improve the sport? If you could just wave your magic scepter, what could you change? I'd give more opportunities to boys and girls that are going to other sports because tennis is very expensive. And I like what the USTA is doing and my former student, Martin Blackman, who's subsidizing these coaches with these players. Rent a court in New York, a couple of hundred dollars, $150 for less. You can't play. You can't do it. You can't play. So what I would do is I would raise monies to give the talented kids and their coaches a chance to reach their heights. Does the IMG Academy do a lot of scholarship kind of situations? I know that you did a lot of that uh, throughout your career. You were, you were having people come. You kind of looked after them. Well, uh, 1987, my accountant called. Ralph Kemley said, Nick, we're in trouble. I said, why? We're full. He said, Nick, you gave all scholarships. But you know what? I do the same thing again. But IMG today certainly evaluates all the situations, and we give help to those of need. And by the way, 98% of the kids that graduated this year went to college. That's a good effort. Well, IMG stresses education too, because it's the foundation of the world. And remember, out of 3,000 professionals playing today, 1% make a living. Nick Boletari, the most legendary living coach there is in tennis. Um, how many Grand Slams are you part of? I think uh, 185. <laughs> I think uh, my students. That's pretty much everyone there is, man. Well, I appreciate it and uh, hope everybody enjoys my book. It'd be called The Coach's Journey and uh, I wrote every single word myself. And everyone should see Love Means Zero too, it's right? Fantastic. If my grandmother saw the billboard on top of Times Square, voluntary love means zero. She would say, Maro, what is this? She would have gone crazy. <laughs> Something like that. 
So right. I've had a super life, baby. Fantastic, my man. Yes, sir. Listen, I want to say uh, uh, honored to speak with you. You've always been so candid and uh, omnipresent and beloved in tennis. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. And I want to thank you all for interviewing me. It's always a pleasure. And I like the questions you ask. They're down to earth and there's no, you know, there's no flowery stuff. And I, I think that's the way life should be. Ah, you just made my day. My man, you are released. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to help support Under Review, the Tennis Insiders podcast, and get some great perks along the way, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. We really appreciate it. Huge thank you to Nick Terry and the people at the IMG Academy. If you want more of the coach, you can check out the documentary Love Means Zero. You can sign up to practice at the IMG Academy. You can see him at pretty much any major tennis tournament. Or if you apply for a job at Merrill Lynch, you can hear him speak there. The man is unbelievable. Thank you to the good people at the New York Open and Josh with the ATP. Special thank you to Marissa Chico. She is our first Patreon patron. We really appreciate it. We hope you enjoy playing with the pros at the Invesco Series event of your choice. Thank you all for listening. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. Tell your friends. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you. So if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreview Tennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.